if I told you imaginary friends are real? This is just so exciting. Now, get ready for the movie event with the greatest cast you've ever imagined. Showtime. Ryan Reynolds, John Krasinski, Kaylee Fleming, Fiona Shaw, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Louis Gossett Jr., Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, George Clooney, Maya Rudolph, Bradley Cooper, Sebastian Maniscalco, John Stewart, Sam Rockwell, Aquafina, Keegan-Michael Key, and Steve Carell. I need to throw up or I need a snack. It's one of the two. Gross. If. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Written and directed by John Krasinski. What's up? Welcome back to the Barton and Bud Show. This is Barton Simmons. That's Bud Elliott. And Bud, man, we're starting to get some guys on campus. Uh, I feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel at this point. I feel like we've weathered the, like, this, the biggest storm with regards to the pandemic. Football is on the horizon, finally. Uh, and we're going to do a little mailbag just to, just to mix it up, toss it around. But uh, I'm optimistic, finally, in, in, in what's going on in college football. I'm wearing my Memphis blue here today for, for everybody on YouTube who can see us. But uh, we, we did not have Memphis in our top 25 of our 24-7 sports. Barton did. I, I didn't. I, I went with UCF, and even though I'm probably the biggest UCF hater out there, uh, according to all their fans I have muted on Twitter, I, I think UCF's going to win that league this year. Barton likes Memphis. Uh, but, man, it does feel good to see top 25s coming out. I know the AP and co- you know coaches will be be later on in the year, uh, but we're all kind of operating, I, I think, off roughly the same information, and that was that was fun to see today. And just judging from the traffic that piece did, uh, readers and listeners are excited to talk about college football again. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think people are ready for it. P- people need it, and this has been college football is having a little bit of splash of cold water around the country with uh, news items uh, surrounding some of the protests and and the George Floyd killing and and. Uh, and, and so that's been really fascinating to track as well. Um, so, you know, in, in a way, just sort of the, the, the movement, the activity, the, the discussion, even if it's been around some more uh, kind of cultural issues than, than sort of on-field issues, uh, it's still been, you know, it's, it's still been, I think, productive to just get back into the discussions of college football. And uh, today we're going to, we're going to use you guys. We're going to use the mailbag uh, to, to get into some topics. Y- y'all have some great questions. Y'all drive us and let us talk about what you're interested in. And if you haven't subscribed, please do. Please give us a five-star review. If you throw a comment or a question in there with the five-star review, we will uh, we will answer it. We'll get to it at some point. Uh, so we got a lot to get to today. We do. And, and we, I, you know, Barton, I wasn't sure if we were going to have one of these today, uh, but the listeners did it. They, they got us to 351 five-star ratings, just barely over that 350 mark. I, I want to do another one of these soon, and I want to see us get to those 400 uh, five-star ratings. So let's go ahead and jump into this. And uh, so the first one comes from uh, some running backs matter, because, uh, of course, the, on Twitter, everybody's like running backs don't matter. Uh, and he asks, uh, do you see the pandemic forcing high school prospects to move states in order to compete this fall? Many West Coast states seem unlikely to have fall sports and prospects need another year of film to get noticed by premier programs. Uh, I know economics preclude many from the opportunity, but I'm sure uh, this, that the kids that love ball would be open to it. This is a question that we got probably a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we haven't done a mailbag episode in a couple of weeks. I, I think it's still valid enough just m- maybe for a, you know, kind of a quick answer here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I think that we could see that. We already have, um, you know, JJ McCarthy left uh, his high school in Illinois to go down IMG Academy. I think in part just because he knew in Florida there would be football. I mean, the big question obviously is out west. Are some kids going to bounce out from out there? I, I still think like the other thing with this is, uh, you know, maybe in like the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, some areas like that, it seems like we're still pretty pretty far away from those guys being able to compete and get together in, in, in big groups. But there's a, I feel like the mo- most of the country seems to be moving towards football. It seems to be getting on campus, getting, getting together, working out. Um, even California seems to be heading towards, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a conclusion that we're all hoping for. So, I guess where they, would they come from and where would they go to? You know, it's not like a bunch of high schools are equipped to go out and recruit these guys. Um, but but I, I think you'll certainly see a few one-offs of, of kids that might might bounce around um, and and maybe get down to the southeast somewhere where things are a little more opened up. I, I, I totally agree there. All right. Uh, next one, we have uh, Whalership 8. He says, is TCU a, a sneaky – Really good player development university. They have produced uh, five first-rounders since joining the Big 12. Compare that to Oklahoma, uh, who has produced just six first-rounders since TCU joined the Big 12. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the answer is – I mean, I think Whaler Ship 8 knows the answer to that question. Uh, he's looking for a pat on the back for a nice question. But no, I mean, I agree. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think TCU is – and, like, one of the things that's, that's that strikes me about TCU is uh, – the way they recruit, like, like Gary Patterson says pretty openly and, and um, kind of almost in a challenging way of like, look, we recruit the guys. Mike Gundy sort of has some of these comments too sometimes. Like, look, we try to recruit the five stars and four stars too. Um, they just don't, they don't seem to be interested in us. And Gary Patterson, his comment often is, you know, the, the really highly, for whatever reason, in-state players don't have the same sort of respect for TCU as even sometimes out-of-state players and I and he doesn't like really know why that is but if, for whatever reason they don't tend to get the, the the superstars in the state of Texas but what they do a fantastic job of is I think they really hit the small schools well like they they'll find the guys in East Texas that play 2A ball 3A ball and 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 really develop those guys and so they do a great job of discovery Great job of evaluation, great job of development. Because when they do get the fours or the five tire star types, Jalen Rager, Ross Blacklock, um, even like Shewa Olana Lua was what was a four star type guy. Uh, they they also develop those guys. So I think when you're doing that, like when you're developing the um, the underrated guys, the 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 underdeveloped, the small school types, and you're also developing and getting the most out of the the big name guys. That's a that's an encouraging combo. That's a good good indicator. I'm going to uh, throw two names at you here, just see if you remember them. And I think they're they're both you know pretty illustrative of, of the points. Both were were three star guys on the composite. The first we actually had as a four star, uh, Trayvon Morig. Yeah, he, he, he was a a tall corner out of, out of uh, Spring, Texas. And the second is uh, R. Darius Washington, uh, who was out of Evangel in, in Shreveport, who we had. Uh, both grades on, on these kids we had higher than the composite, so good on us. And it looked, I mean, it just I, I fell into kind of a, a little bit of a rabbit hole 
last night on on Twitter uh, watching some you know kind of some match quarters type stuff that uh, the TCU runs and, and how they how they defend the spread and and they have one of the best young safety tandems in the nation in in uh, in Washington and and Morgan and I mean both of those guys were class of 2018 recruits I I, I think yeah because because Washington's first year was last year because he redshirted in 18. Uh, th- those guys had some bigger offers. I'm not sure they were takes for all those bigger offers. For instance, you know, on our profile uh, at 24/7 Sports, Washington lists an offer from LSU, but he was 5'8", 175 listed in high school, so maybe not a take given given all the freakazoids that LSU has been able to you know to take athletically. Um, just a really good job of identifying talent. I I think if they get anything from their offense, TCU is going to be live this year. In the Big Twelve, I, I think that defense is going to be really good. So, our Darius Washington—I don't know if he was a take at LSU by the end of the process. I don't really remember. He was a commit at LSU at one point, though. He, so he he actually decommitted from LSU, and I don't again, I don't really remember how that went down. What the you know whether he was sort of a guy that got dropped, so to speak. But um, you know, TCU went and landed him, and and he's you know, turned into a good player undersized though it may be another one just a class earlier I remember asking someone at LSU about Garrett Wallow because I remember you know I turned on his film he played safety his film popped I remember asking someone at LSU what they thought of him and it wasn't like they they dogged the kid but they were like yeah probably not probably not good enough for us basically and that guy's going to be an NFL draft pick um and so the the you know TCU again like you, you find the right guys you develop them uh, you find spots for him. I think the other thing they do, like Garrett Wallow, was sort of a hybrid guy. He he still is sort of this hybrid linebacker safety, and and so they have this defense that's more malleable to just bringing on athletes wherever they may be, whatever they may look like, and find a way to get them the football, even offensively. So like like what our Darius Washington is a great example. He's like five eight five nine or whatever he is. They get him on the field. Garrett Wallow is a sort of a a, a rover hybrid type, and their defense can can find a role for him. Um, I'm I'm blanking on the the uh the kid that was a really good player. I think he got kicked off the team a couple years ago, sort of a slot receiver type that was awesome for them, who was sort of in the same mold offensively, just like an undersized guy, but they found a way to use him. He was a good punt returner, kick returner. Um Oh, I know you're talking about. He he was uh, like their whole offense at times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um so they they've you know, I think it's not only is it development, not only is it evaluating, but I, I do think you give credit for scheme too, like fi- like just finding ways to to for those guys to be successful absolutely um i, I mean i really don't like the, my, my questions about this team this year are are almost entirely on offense Duggan related yeah basically and, and i mean he's a guy who i thought had had some real potential because he was a multi-sport guy in high school thought he was pretty athletic you know kind of kind of a natural athlete um but yeah, I mean, they're, they're. I mean, Max Duggan flashed last year. Now, like he, there were moments where he looked really good. He's just inconsistent. I mean, true freshman starter, played small school football in Iowa. Um, there's, I mean, there's going to be some ups and downs in that kind of a year. And like, so the, then this year will be telling to find out whether Max Duggan is is bound for an, a, a career of ups and downs, or just like an inconsistent quarterback, or whether he could very well take a big step forward. And and like, there's a. There's a, a a scenario that I can envision where Max Duggan is one of the better quarterbacks in the country 
if not this year, but not, you know, in the not too distant future. We certainly thought he had that potential coming out and he won a starting job right out of the gate. And he was, you know, had some pretty impressive moments. All right. So let's go ahead and, and go to jerk 919. And he asks uh, first, uh, is this going to be a, a Georgia pod like the cover three, uh, a Dave Clawson pod? Might I suggest being a Jeff Hapley pod? Uh, and that gets into the second part of his question here. He says, in all seriousness, though, I heard the Indiana question and was wondering uh, if you guys would field a Boston College question for a fan who has made it a habit of expecting mediocrity, uh, but hoping for the best, upset Clemson, contend for the Atlantic in the season ranked. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future of BC football? Their non-conference schedule always seems manageable, although they did lose to Kansas on a Friday night at home recently. Uh, but from a recruiting perspective, combined with the ACC Atlantic schedule, what should I expect? And then he, he goes the extra mile here, Barton. He says, for your convenience... Here is our non-conference schedule and 24-7 corresponding recruiting rank of those opponents uh, for the next few years. So uh, he says 2020, they get Ohio at home, at Kansas, Purdue, Holy Cross. 2021, they go to UMass, at Temple, host Missouri, and in TBD. Uh, 2022, Rutgers, Maine, at UConn, TBD. And 2023, uh, NIU, Holy Cross, at Army, and UConn. So I... I'm going to Google one thing real quick here while you while you tackle the first part of that question about a Georgia pod or a Dave Clawson pod. I got a feeling that's a that's a cover three reference. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. With, uh, since since the cover three pod has has morphed into a Georgia pod, maybe we should make this one a Florida pod. Uh, I know your old Florida State brethren, uh, you know, from the Null Cast would appreciate that. Or may I got from a counterculture perspective, uh, you know, Dave Clawson is is. No one respects Dave Clawson more than the Cover Three Pod. Uh, maybe we need to adopt like a Neil Brown or somebody. You know, West Virginia, a little off the beaten path, built up Troy. Uh, I know you you just did an interview with them for Social Distance. I just wrote a story about how good they're, uh, how impressed I am with their recruiting. So, uh, hey, Jeff Hatley's not a bad bad candidate too. But you know, we, we're definitely fans of finding a guy that can do a lot with a little. And uh, Neil Brown seems like he's got a little Dave Clawson in him for that, uh, in that regard. For those who don't know, of course, Jeff Hafley, former defensive coordinator at Ohio State and takes over at Boston College this year uh, as their uh, first-year head coach. Uh, kind of took over very late in the recruiting process. So one of these guys who we would probably identify as, as a true you know, year zero uh, type coach. So ACC-wise, right? One of the things I like to kind of do when I'm evaluating a program, I look at it and I say, okay, if everybody is operating at relative peak efficiency, okay, so like everybody's got got their stuff together, everybody's trying hard, nobody's on weird probation or anything like that, what games are you going to be favored over, assuming you're doing your best and everybody else is doing their best? Are you going to be favored over Clemson? No. Florida State? No. Louisville? Probably not. NC State? Probably not. I, I think NC State's highs have been higher than some of Boston College's highs, but we're kind of getting a little more into the conversation there. We we always ID NC State as a team or a program that should be a little bit better, but they never are. So there may be some systemic st- things holding them back that maybe like a and It's like, why aren't they better? You know, like may- maybe there's some stuff that as analysts we just don't know. Syracuse? Yeah, I, I think Boston College can can be as good or better than Syracuse if, if they're both trying their best. Wake Forest, certainly. I think I, I think I just covered all, all the teams there in the division. Their, their annual crossover game, I think, is Virginia Tech. 
I believe, because it, it's uh, one of those old Big East rivalries. They had a weird thing going, and this was basically the very tail end of like the Bobby Bowden era and the very beginning of sort of the Jimbo era there under Tom O'Brien, where like the rest of the ACC, especially Atlantic, was was terrible. It's it's what spawned the ACC Wheel of Destiny on 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 College Game Day or the uh, the, the college whatever that wrap up show in the evening is. Um, they, they went nine and three, ten and three, eleven and three, nine and five, nine and three from oh four to oh eight. And back then, I, I wasn't covering nationally as much, and, and I said, like, this is great for them. They are. They're really, they're busting out. But here's the thing. They don't really control their own destiny. If the other programs in that division get their stuff together, there's really not a whole lot BC can do to maintain this level of success. And indeed, at that time, Clemson and Florida State were absolute you know, shows, right? I mean, they, they didn't have their stuff together. NC State was kind of up and down. Um, the, Wake Forest won that division one year. and you know, I actually went to the Orange Bowl. So I, I think at Boston College, I don't want it to sound like a hater because I don't think making a bowl is their ceiling. But I do think any year in which you make a bowl at Boston College, it, it should be considered a, a success, honestly. Uh, that, that That's a pretty good thing there. The recruiting base is not great. They, they do have a, a difficult schedule relative to their, their ability to get talent within the league, even though the ACC is not killer. That 2022 year looks like a year they can make a run, though. Rutgers, Maine, at UConn, and TBD. As long as that TBD is not like Alabama or something, uh, maybe they can win 8-9. So here's my, my question with BCU, though. Like, Steve Adazio was basically a perennial six- or seven-win coach. Not bad. I mean, he was. He was just like a... Seven-win Steve. Yeah, there was, they, were, they were forever going to be a seven-win team. Um, and And so I guess the question then is like, how do you view like the 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 caretaking of Steve Adazio within that program? Like, do you view Steve Adazio as someone that just sort of hits a pits par with them? Is he hitting bogeys with them or is he hitting, you know, is 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 he is he you know, is he doing better than BC should be doing? I would probably say Steve Adazio is like, you know, he's he's hitting par um to, to, meaning like if there's a really good coach that comes in if Jeff Halfley is a really good coach then they can get three to four non-conference wins a year they can get hey I don't know they could get four to five consistent conference wins a year I mean it's not like the ACC is like bubbling over with with teams that look like they're like poised to take the next step so you know is can BC get to where they are consistently going eight and four with a chance for the occasional nine and three or 10 and two cycle up? I mean, that's the, that's the hope. That's like the best case scenario probably. And I'm never like, you know, I, if they recruit well, I think they'll be coached well. Uh, It'll be interesting. I mean, I think, I, I think they've got that capability in them. I don't totally disagree. I I love your your analogy of, of par. Like to me, Steve Adazio at BC was that professional golfer who knows he doesn't have what it takes to win the tournament. Right, 
but he's trying to make a living. He's not go. He, he's, he's not. He's not. He's not pin hunting, right? He, he's just trying to hit for the middle of the green, trying to two putt, take his par, get on to the next hole, make cuts, stay alive, keep his tour card. You know, g- get a couple top twenty, top thirty type finishes like that. That's kind of what Adazio was at BC. I, I will note that I think yes, a they are capable of having a better coach than Adazio, who I don't think is a great coach at all, right? And I think they're capable of leveling up. Maybe by a win per season. I, the nine and three range is an expectation to me is too high. I think eight and four, seven and five can be done if you couple it with the right kind of schedule. And I will say, recently, I don't know that that uh, Boston College has done that as well for them. Last year, they had a game at Notre Dame and they got blown out forty to seven. Right, the prior year, who did they play? Uh, UMass, Holy Cross. That they went to Purdue and, and got blitzed, and they played a pretty damn good Temple team and only beat them by, by 10, right? That That's a little more reasonable to me. The prior year, again, they got Notre Dame. Now, this ACC scheduling arrangement with Notre Dame is something they really can't control, but in years where you play Notre Dame, if you're Boston College, you need to add another loss to your expectation because for the most part, unless something happens to Brian Kelly, like you're probably going to lose that game. They're going to out-recruit you by enough margin that you're not going to beat them, typically. Uh, they've also played, looking at some other stuff here, uh, 2016 w- w- was actually not that bad. They had that game against USC where they actually won, but again, from a scheduling policy standpoint, you know, probably not not the best idea. If you're BC and you want to try to challenge for eight and four, nine and three, and you want to kind of sneak into this back half of the top 25, because we know a lot of these riders really don't pay attention to the metrics; they just look at the win and loss record, especially when it comes down to the bottom, you know, maybe third of that top 25. If you want to threaten to be in that thing. Schedule yourself some wins in the non-conference. Pay up for the, for those those gimme games. Tell me if you agree with this. I think BC has a higher ceiling than Wake Forest. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. So Wake Forest is like in and like this is a really probably strong period with Wake, and they're up to eight eight wins two of the last three years. You know, I think BC could get to that, and then can it can it get get through that next step of getting to like eight wins is the is the is the standard. You know, nine wins is the good year. That's that's a tough step to take. Right. Um, all right. LR says, if football is played in the spring of 2021, how does that affect early enrollees? Would an early enrollee for the class of 2021 be able to suit up? I think if Derek Stingley last year, who in the spring was locking people down before even playing a snap at LSU. So we left this question in because of, of the recruiting tie. We don't think college ball is going to be played in the spring, we think it's going to be in the fall and, and probably start on time at this point, just based on, on reading the tea leaves out there. I have no idea, actually, about this, but I did ask about it. And, and, and I asked one of my guys, a friend of mine who, who works in compliance, and he was like, man, that is not something we have even thought about. We haven't had any guidance on that from the NCAA. It's just not something that's ever really happened before. Now, he did note, he's like, look, they do play the national title game in January. Uh, so technically those guys are on campus, like, like the questioner LR noted here, uh, and they can they can practice in January. But because the January game is actually an extension of the fall sport, they're not eligible to play in that game because they didn't play in that season. So his thought was basically like, because this is still a fall sport that's being played in the fall, that you wouldn't really be able to play in it. You'd, you'd basically like, you wouldn't be a freshman until the fall. Yeah, I would imagine they could, yeah, those early enrollees, I would think, 
could practice with the team, but they wouldn't be able to like, they're ultimately there's still a scholarship limit. There's a five scholarship right. limit. So then do you, are you rewarded? Like if you have 14 early enrollees that spring, you have, do you have like, uh, what is it? 99 players on scholarship that year. And you just have like a, additional depth that other t- that don't happen to have early enrollees don't have. Like, I think that they, those guys would not be able to suit up on Saturdays, but they would be able to practice. So maybe your scout team would get a, a jolt of, of athleticism, but I I'd be, I'd be pretty surprised if early enrollees would be able to play in a delayed spring. All right, Barton, after this, we're going to go ahead and get back to some more listener questions. Everyone is talking about if I'm going to go to Lynn Human. I like it. I love it. It's original and heartfelt. Ta-da! And the must-see comedy of the summer <laughs> that's perfect for the whole family. This is just so exciting. If Witty PG, now playing in theaters. The time has come for drag queens to save the world. Drag queens save the world. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is back on Paramount+. Plus, and for the first time ever, I want you to use your talent for good. For a change. <laughs> Eight iconic queens are competing for the charity of their choice. This is how you do drag. Who will slay it forward, win cash for their favorite cause, and a coveted spot in the Drag Race Hall of Fame. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. New season now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. All right, we're back. And uh, we have a question here from Great to be a Gator 98. Uh, and he says, what are some Power 5 teams uh, that aren't being talked about right now uh, that could be dominant or prominent in the 2020. So I, I he doesn't I like give us, this question, by yeah, the way. I do too. But we needed to define our terms a little bit. Like, what is being talked about? Like, what, what are we saying top 10? Are we saying top, like outside the top 20? What, what, are, what are we looking at? So the way I think of this is if like a dominant team in the 2020s means a team that every year is a strong candidate to make the playoffs. Like, like a lot of people have, like, like I think of Oklahoma in that, I think of certainly Alabama, Clemson, Ohio state, I think Georgia probably as well. Those are kind of like the five dominant teams right now. Some combination of them is always in everyone's uh, preseason playoffs. Sure. We got some options here then. If we're going to limit it kind of that five. Right. So like, I, but but I don't know. Like, I didn't necessarily go to like Florida and say they're gonna be, you know, because Florida, I think is like I, I sort of cut off a lot of those teams right on the cusp of that as well. So sure. I, let me let me give you a couple that I that I that come to mind. So there's three that come to mind because I, I I guess there's a, you know, there's those that elite group and then there's the group that's contending to be in that elite group already and then there's sort of the 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 just outside. Uh, and three teams that come to mind as just outside that could that could have the ceiling of being dominant. Um, one is Oregon, and Oregon, you could even make a case Oregon is already like on the cusp. But I, I do think Oregon, it wouldn't shock me if Oregon was just you pencil them in as the Pac-12 champion every year in within a few seasons, because. Like the way you way I certainly look at it is is who's recruiting at a really high level, um, who's con- going to continue to recruit at a really high level, and and has sort of the the energy to to keep that pace. I think that the Mario Cristobal does, and I think they have the right mindset. I think they have a friendly environment to to be continuously successful there in the Pac-12. 
Uh, and so I just think, I think Oregon, Oregon could be that team. I, I also mentioned uh, Tennessee. They're not there yet. They're not going to be there this year, but I think there's a lot of really strong indicators that Tennessee is building it the right way. I think there's a lot of really strong indicators that Jeremy Pruitt is no, is no faker as a coach. Um, and I, I think Tennessee, I mean, that still is a program with tremendous pedigree. Uh, it's, you know, it will, it will not be strange if we see Tennessee dominating college football again. Like that's not going to be hard to, to, to sort of fathom. And then the last one I have here, and there's some others that are sort of, I would, I would throw in there to discuss, but the, the other one that I have that sort of fits this to a T to me is, is North Carolina. Um, I mean, Mac Brown, you know, when, when check out that my social distance interview with Stanford, Steve, if you haven't, uh, he, he was awesome. North Carolina was recruiting him back in like 95 out of, uh, out of Connecticut. He, that was where he chose, or he, that was his like runner up school to, to Stanford. And he said like his visit there in 95, like was when he saw that team, uh, the talent on that team was like, it was a Mac Brown team was was some of the most incredible talent he'd ever seen and, and has ever seen since. And I just think about that and it's like Mac Brown's already done this once there. And now he's now he's gone to Texas. He's won a national championship there. He's learned from where his missteps were there. He's back. They're recruiting at a really high level. The state of North Carolina is just bubbling with talent. They have a quarterback. Uh so and, and then they and then they're in a very friendly conference in terms of like how to, you know, a conference that there's there's some upward mobility to 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 climb to the top of the ledge. I just think North Carolina. It's it's really easy to see this being a team that, in the same way Clemson, sort of came out of nowhere as a non traditional power, and I could I could very easily see North Carolina be kind of juggernaut ish if things track. The, I mean, this is going to be a critical year. We'll see what happens this year if they take the next big step forward. That'll be telling. Or if it's just, you know, whatever, if they go six and six or seven and five, then maybe we pump the brakes. But uh, they, they're certainly headed, seem to be heading in the right direction. I, I don't hate those picks. I, I don't love them quite as much as you do. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm kind of our low man by a lot on Oregon, just looking at, at the internal voting with, with, with 24-7. So, I, but, but, I, but it's not just next year, right? Right. Like we're right. talking about 2020s. Long term, I like it. Yeah, yeah. I do have... A couple. I've, okay, so I have a related question for both Oregon and for UNC. Who is UNC's head coach in 2025, and who's Oregon's head coach in 2025? So, I mean, I, I think if I think Mario Cristobal, it, it's not it's, it's not hard for me to like. There's like where would Mario Cristobal go? Bama. All right. Okay. So, but 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 there's there's another like if 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 the teams that I just mentioned hit as dominant teams in the 2020s right okay let's just say the early 2020s okay who's the more likely head coach at tennessee mario cristobal or jeremy pruitt i'm sorry at, at alabama that's a good point yeah so like one of these maybe they'll cancel each other out because one of these guys will end up at alabama um but i i think there are other candidates for alabama that are that are that make sense you know even if mario cristobal hits and, and, and I mean, not not to just totally derail the conversation into the who replaces Nick Saban combo because I'm sure we'll we'll do a a longer feature on that at some point. 
and I don't think he's anywhere close to retiring. Uh, but like Bama screwed up, screwed themselves up for like about a decade or, or you know, twelve year period, just trying to trying to basically like like re- recapture that that Bear Bryant magic by by having like mandating that they would hire somebody who was on Bear Bryant's staff, right? Kind of like USC did for a long time with having to have somebody who was related to Pete Carroll, even though it doesn't really like that. That's not how stuff. That's not how successful teams, you know, seem to work. Uh, but I, I don't hate those picks. I, I think if Cristobal, if his new offensive coordinator there, Joe Moorhead, if, if he, if Cristobal is hands off, then I think Oregon's going to be better than, than I think they're going to be. I have some concerns about Oregon because last year they still didn't have a top twenty level offense, and they had Justin Herbert, and they just lost four offensive linemen and a good number of other stuff. Uh, with UNC, See, but you're getting caught in a little bit of like the like this season, like sure. what, like what's how are things going to work this season? Like I'm thinking about just like the bones of the program. Like I'm thinking like if they're if they're the dominant team of the 2020s, Joe Moorhead's only going to be there like three years, anyways. Like or if right. they're you know like so I'm thinking of like head coach, access to talent, willingness to recruit, ability to recruit, infrastructure in yeah. place. Uh, fan base willing to engage, whatever, like all these just sort of more macro like elements as opposed to sort of these things that are, that could and probably will change from a year to year basis. So your choices are more daring than mine are. And, okay. and, I, and I like them better. I'm going to go with two that I think are not totally off the board, but maybe like, maybe we shouldn't have skipped over them. Texas and USC. Okay. My my thought here is that either they're gonna they're gonna get good really soon, or they're gonna have the money and spend the money to go out and hire coaches who can do it. Like to me, this is kind of a make it or break it year for Tom Herman. He goes another year without playing in that Big Twelve title game. With, and, and like if they flop this year with, with Ellinger and with all those DBs they recruited, I I don't know if we're talking about Tom Herman there in twenty twenty one. You know, and I don't know what all this COVID stuff's gonna do as far as hiring, firing, hot seat season. But I mean. That's a program that has the resources to do it. They have a national championship, at least in the BCS era. You know, it's within the last 15 years. They've played for another one in whatever year that was. They played, was that 20, 2011 they played Bama or, or 2010, 09 maybe, whatever it was. Uh, they could do it, and I think USC could also do it. Maybe those are just too blue-bloody. I, again, I think your answers were were more creative there. I, I like those. So my Texas, all right, so like if – as you project Texas as a dominant team of the 2020s, and you're envisioning Texas as a dominant team of the 2020s, you're in, are you envisioning Texas as a dominant team of the 2020s with Tom Herman as their head coach? No, or are you, not or are you saying, Or are you saying that it's, it could happen with them, but it also could happen without them? I like the pick because it doesn't have to happen with him. I think their bones are good enough. Their access to talent are good enough. I mean, who knows? Maybe Lincoln Riley go to the Cowboys at some point, right? And, and he'll he'll stop killing the Longhorns. I, f- I feel like Chris Del Conte is a good AD and will evaluate that situation correctly. And if Herman's not the guy, then they'll go out and get somebody. Texas is interesting because one, it feel like I I still think the Texas under Tom Herman is is capable of having a good season and making the playoffs. Washington had a good season and made the playoffs. Michigan State had a good season and made the playoffs. The you know and and look and, and Washington has continued to be a consi- con, uh, consistent, successful team. But it feels like to me if if Texas under Tom Herman was going to be a perennial 
playoff team in the same way Oklahoma is, Alabama or Clemson, it feels like we would know that by now. Not, not necessarily, they wouldn't even have to have been in the playoffs by now, but it feels like we would, in heading into year four, we would, we would have a pretty good sense of that. And we just don't. Like they went seven and six, 10 and four, eight and five. There's been inconsistencies, you know, throughout. And there's, look, they still recruit well. I don't know. Maybe this is, maybe this is the year. Like, like he basically took his Houston staff with him. He's made a couple of changes since, but you know the the big shakeup this year at offensive and defensive coordinator. Maybe that's maybe that's what they're missing. I, I, but but it feels like perennially dominant Texas is 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 either just isn't with Tom Herman. Doesn't mean they're not perennially good. Doesn't mean that they're not perennially a Big Twelve contender. But it feels like perennially dominant on a national scale we would know that by now so yeah i i I mostly agree with you there right i i was on the fade texas train last year i bet them under i was wagering against them in early games i thought that the way their roster set up what they lost off the 2018 team was an important amount of stuff that they lost right like it was going to hurt them and that didn't really fit a lot of the media narrative out there because they're like oh it's it's tom herman's you know second full year on the job, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but like the players on your roster, they, they matter. And they were going to be very young on defense last year. And with that, uh, they had a lot of guys last year who got hurt on defense. And so a lot of my Texas friends, who I, I believe are, are pretty smart folks, were like, hey, man, like they've lost so much on defense now with these injuries, they're, they're kind of crippled. And I was like, okay, got it. But then Herman goes out and changes up almost his entire staff. I'm like, damn, like if the narrative is, hey, we were just young, and we were super young due to injuries, especially on defense. And the numbers show that. I mean, they were 10th in offensive SP+, 68th in defensive SP+. Like, yeah, they, they were terrible on defense and pretty damn good on offense. If the numbers show that and you really believe your issue was uh, like your young guys getting hurt in the secondary, then why are you firing your, your, your coaches? Maybe it shows that like, like maybe this is a little more of a panic move than Texas fans want to admit. So, yeah, I, I'm not fully sold that Tom Herman's going to be the guy leading to the playoff. But I am kind of on board with Texas as a bit of a bounce back this year. Yeah, and I think Texas, like, this This is this is a huge year. This is, they, they, they could make the playoffs this year. Like, they're, they could, they're an absolute dark horse playoff contender. So, um, but if this is another eight and five year, if this is, if this is a nine and four year even, then it's sort of like, all right, what have we? What do we? What have we really achieved? Um, this is this is University of Texas. Exactly. All right. Let's see what we got next. We got uh, the CL Dub. CL Dub fourteen. That was a great show. Love the chemistry conversation. Now for the real reason I'm here. Outside of Sam Heward, Washington's recruiting class is kind of underwhelming. They're in on some really highly rated kids, Emeka Buka, JT Tui Malowal, Troy Franklin. But my fear is they'll be this year's Florida. We'll miss out on all these guys come signing day. So tell me that Jimmy Lake is the guy we thought he was, Barnes number 38 coach in P5, and that the class will come together. Take Talk me off the ledge. Ooh, okay. So <laughs> I know Brennan Huffman wrote about this or is planning to write about this coming up. I, I, I know I've, I've spoken with him about the piece like is Washington going to be able to keep these kids uh, at home and right now I I don't think the optimism is very high that they do right like Egbuka 
I think is probably going to Ohio State just based off, off, off the chatter that we have. And, you know, JT as well is probably o- o- Ohio State bound at this point. I, I am a little bit baffled by this. And maybe my expectations for Jimmy Lake in the recruiting class were just too high because he was uh, not only a good hire, in my opinion, but a continuity hire. So he's not somebody that has to come and build new relationships with, with these prospects. He's somebody who you know, already knew these guys. I thought they would be doing better in recruiting than they are. And I thought that they were really going to improve in recruiting. I, I thought he was going to bring a little bit more fresh approach to them. And, I mean, Barton, I'm hitting page down here. Two, three, four times. Just had to hit load. If you ever have to hit load more on the 247 website, that's not a good sign, man. They're, they're How many times did you have to hit load more? I uh, only had to hit, hit load more once. Okay, um, all right. They're 59th in recruiting right now. They got they got one five-star, obviously, in Heward, uh, five three-stars, and my math tells me that means they have one kid who's not rated yet on the composite. Probably, yeah, a junior college kid who we, we need the other, other uh, networks to go ahead and step up and throw some ratings on because we, we have our JUCO ratings mostly done, and uh, he's a zero-star under composite. He's kind of dragging our score down a little bit. Uh, Man, are, are you surprised this as I am? Because I'm, I'm a little surprised that they don't have a little more traction with these West Coast kids. I am surprised. I mean, this is a historic. Like, this is the best year we've ever seen in the state of Washington, and it was a great year to have this new energy. Jimmy Lake on board. Future of the program looks bright, and yet they're not going to dominate the state. Uh, at least it doesn't seem that way. And this is a this is the perfect time to have, I mean, because of the quarantine, like there's a reason Maryland is recruiting at the top 15 level. There's a reason that Rutgers is recruiting at the top 20, 25 level. There's a reason that, that you know, a lot of these teams that re- really rely on local talent and get, get beat on local talent by some of these really big name schools are, are having some success right now. And Washington is not capitalizing on that. And so part of my calculus of having Jimmy Lake number 38 in my power five coach rankings in his first year was I was under the assumption that he would be really good on recruiting. And so if he's not, I don't know, but like, so I do think that they have a chance to be better this year than a lot of people realize. So like, that's the big, maybe caveat is that maybe they have a really good season um, and maybe that maybe recruiting sort of is finds its legs after after you know the the proof of concept with this new staff and particularly this new offensive staff. But no, I'm I'm very surprised at where they're at from a recruiting standpoint. The the positive is just you know they 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 may actually be pretty good this fall. Sometimes the best pitch you get to hit and hold at bat is that first pitch fastball. And that's kind of what it looks like. Like the chance that the state of Washington is as loaded as it is right now uh, in the next four or five years is is pretty low. I mean, this is a statistical outlier of of pretty epic proportions within the state. And Jimmy Lake, if he's going to hit it big there, I'm not saying he's going to be a success, but if he's going to really kill it there, I think he has to really do a better job with this class. And and we'll we'll see if he can. Uh, CW9 asks us, uh, my question would be, after listening to the first of your position you discussions, do you expect the teams at the top to stay there, or are there other teams you see getting into it uh, to that top range based on their current rosters and recruiting? What is a team, uh, or more if you so please, at each position you think could climb the ladder? It's kind of a fun one. 
It is kind of fun. Did you dig into this one much? No, so, I, I didn't, but I, I'm just, I'm, I'm scanning in my head here. Yeah, I, I got a few. So first of all, I'll, I'll just address defense. I think that's all we addressed on the, on our position you series last time. We can, I think we got this coming week, uh, weekend starts. We got a rankings release on um, Wednesday, June uh, 17th. And so we'll have leading up to that rankings release. We'll have some, um, some good position you content for offense. But in terms of the, the positions that we've done defensively, at DB, I think DBU is is there's there's like a there's a DNA in DBU that's like the the it might shuffle a little bit, but I don't think it's going to change dramatically. A couple of teams I think that could could move in. Um, one, you would hope Texas will, considering all the talent that they've got back there. If they if they if Texas does move into DBU within the next five years or within the next like year or two, then that's a that's a huge missed opportunity because they've recruited some dudes back there. Uh, the other one at DB is I think Georgia is poised to have a pretty good run of DBs. Um, you know they had DeAndre Baker two years ago. They had you know they've got um, Richard LeCount who should get drafted somewhere. Along. I don't. It's it's it'll be very interesting to see where he gets drafted. What kind of year he has? Does he have like a Carl Joseph kind of undersized year where he can go first round, or does he have a you know, is he a six rounder? Like it could go any, any direction there, but then there's also, there's like, um, you know, Tyson Campbell. They just got the, um, Keely Ringo from this, this class is a five-star monster. Uh, they've got, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on sort of the rest of the secondary, this cycle, but it's a loaded group. Like they're like their backups are NFL guys this, yeah. this year. It's that Georgia defense this year is going to be absolutely insane. I will also point out Barton, like the nature of, how you calculate it is very much uh, allowing for a process to where there are a lot of teams cycling in and out because it's not like we're looking at like a 15-year sample here, right? Like this is just basically the last, was it three years or five years? Last five. five. The last five. So basically like since the current kids uh, being recruited entered seventh grade, you know, like that, that's because, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. Yeah. Like that's, that's the the relevant sample here. And, you know, if, if you had a really good, 2014 that's already cycling out mm-hmm. as a school so you have to keep being really good and I, I think it allows for a lot of turnover which is pretty neat to track those recent trends yeah there's a few at linebacker <clears throat> that i think could cycle in uh one nowhere to be found found right now is penn state but from a from a recruiting standpoint i don't know that anyone over the last three classes has brought in more talented linebacker than Penn State starting with Micah Parsons who they could have played he could have been a DN but they they put him at linebacker so he's going to count to the linebackers but then you get Brandon Smith and Lance Dixon this past year um the is it Curtis uh um Jacobs from uh the the linebacker from uh from the Atlantic coast over there that he's he's going to be a stud they I mean they just have they got another good class this year. Like they, they've just been doing such a good job since the Micah Parsons class of recruiting the linebacker position. Uh, they're stacked there, um, so they're going to be in there. You know, Oregon just had uh, Troy Die drafted at linebacker. You know, they. I don't know. I guess I'm trying to think what 
this might be a couple years away because I just think I guess I'm just thinking about the class they just brought in where they brought two five-star linebackers in. It's just a un, kind of an unreal group. And then I think Notre Dame is about to be in the linebacker conversation too because Jeremiah Owusu Koromoa is is going to be an early round pick this year. And they've got this sort of really deep group of I think NFL guys. Notre Dame might have like, you know, two fifth or sixth rounders picked a year over the next few years. Kind of kind of that sort of room, it feels like. Um, so I like those three for the linebacker position as well. Did you already have Clemson in your linebacker? Yeah, I think they just made the cut at linebacker. Well, I, I like their chance to stay there, right? Yeah. With, with, with Simpson and uh, Brighton Constantine. And God, there's some other guys they signed who I, I liked as well. Uh, but yeah. the Patterson kid out of Nashville actually was was not bad. He'll be um, one of those classic Clemson guys that's like a three-year starter and playing in a national championship game, and then maybe he gets drafted in like the sixth round or something. The one you want to bet on, though, is clearly Penn State just because like even if these guys don't become stars at Penn State athletically, they're going to murder the combine. And yeah. I mean, like that, they're going to get like that. That's why I have so much confidence in Penn State. Like, A, I think their defense is well coached, but B, I mean, dude, they're going to be like really, really good combine players as well. Yeah. The other two positions, interior D-line, uh, I didn't really – there wasn't an obvious one to me. Like, I'm not saying it's not, it's not out there, but I, I couldn't think of an obvious interior D-line group that was going to cycle in. I did – one thing I've, of note, like, you know, NC State was in there, large part because of that group that, like, Ryan Nielsen, their assistant coach, is now with the Saints brought in that, that's, that was led by, like, Bradley Chubb and that crowd. Um, I don't think that that was a aberration – um, I think that they, they actually, particularly in 2019, they brought in a really good class yep. of D linemen. They're, they're still sort of producing. Like I, I think NC State will stay, uh, which I think is, is kind of interesting. And then edge, I think Miami's already in the edge group. They maybe barely made it, um, yeah. but they're going to continue to be in there. I mean, they got Gregory Rousseau coming out. I hope Jalen Phillips continues to, to – like showcase that he's kind of returned to form a little bit that could be he could be coming out in two years I guess could be coming out this year technically we're going to give him credit for the transfer from Temple uh Quincy yeah they'll get credit for it they'll get All credit right. for Quincy Roche if uh yeah I mean that that's and so you know that's kind of kind of cheating a little bit there but still they're going to be they might go from whatever they were fourth for, for edge to to number one next year no doubt all right so uh, Joe Cool Clemson fan says, I'm a huge Clemson fan, uh, as the name would imply, uh, but I love to watch other teams as well. I always try to watch the games with the big names, but those usually disappoint because they're usually normally blowouts uh, like our games. He said, what are some top 25 teams that I should watch to see some close and exciting games? Ooh, okay. I, I've, I've, got a, I've got a couple that I've been, I've been thinking about here. All right. You go first. You want me to lead off? All yeah. right. So uh, I'm going to start with Notre Dame. Right, Notre Dame schedule has a lot of games to where, like, I think they're going to be favored in most of their games. Thus, they're like a top 10 caliber team. But they got enough games to where you're going to see games that are exciting, you know, pretty deep into the third quarter. They also play a schedule that involves what SEC, ACC, Pac 12, Big 10 teams. So, so you see a lot of different uh, parts of the country come to play Notre Dame. You see a lot of different styles that Notre Dame's going to play against. I mean, they're, they're a pretty good TV product as well. NBC does a you know, a, a good job with the broadcast, uh, if we can say that. You know, I know CBS is our parent company. But, uh, like, overall, I think Notre Dame is one I would throw out there. Uh, if you want close and entertaining, 
not always high scoring, but but Auburn has got to be in here. They always have the absolute that's craziest true. stuff. Like that is true. I didn't I didn't put Auburn in my group, but that's true. Auburn plays like like Auburn games are like the last two minutes of an NBA game for the entirety of the Auburn game. It's like wow, how did how did that happen? I, I think Texas is another one that this year they they could you know could have some nice close games. They should be pretty entertaining. Um, th- those are, are three of the ones that really stuck out to me. Well, like if, if last year is any indication, UNC, I mean, you're a Clemson guy, uh, Clemson, cool, Joe Cool Clemson fan, so maybe you know UNC, but like Mr. Fourth Quarter, Sam Howell, certainly made things exciting pretty much all year last year, win or lose. Wisconsin, like that's just – that's their nature is just to play things close, get in rock fights, just – just grind it out. And this is going to be really grinded out style this year because they'll be down a little bit offense, up a little more on defense, more of a running back by committee deal. Wisconsin is going to play in a lot of really close games, I think. UVA is sort of the Wisconsin of the South. I think UVA with, with Keaton Thompson is going to be a team that's, that doesn't blow teams out but is, is low scoring and kind of deliberate in their pacing. And then uh, I think Tennessee and Arizona State are, two, are also going to be some teams that are going to be good, but not really the blow it out type of squads. Arizona State absolutely is a great pick here because just even though I think they should open it up a little more, uh, Herm manages his games like an NFL thing and like they run the ball probably too much i mean like if we're talking about it on an efficiency basis they, they really like to run it they, they like to slow the game down there i mean those games that, that they play they they don't have a whole lot of possession i mean like arizona state's like all right we get the ball nine times cool let's go that's uh that's that's enough for us we'll, we'll be home in time for uh early bird special um i mean they're they're definitely a, a team to watch that's a good question we should put together a a guide for that <laughs> And then, uh, so last one here for this episode, Henry Green 6969 says, what does Oregon need to do to become a legitimate national title threat? Let's say USC is down for another two years. How does Oregon capitalize on their momentum and become a national power? I mean, we, we touched on Oregon a little bit. Um, I think as much as anything, I mean, that, that's, their, their offense has been sort of the head scratcher. You mentioned Joe Moorhead and sort of the importance of of him. That was sort of the profile of Penn State when he arrived there. Is a little bit of a an offense that was that was stuck in the mud, uh, had talent, but you know didn't really have the offense to to match it. Um, defense that sort of carried them the last few years. I mean, defense is going to be really good this year for Oregon. Defense is young too. Like they've got some good young talent beyond this year. So I just think defense is is going to be solid. You got to trust the offensive line. So it's just then what's what's going on at quarterback, what's going on at offensive coordinator. So I, you know, I just think it's I think it's incumbent on Joe Moorhead to come in there and give him a give him some juice. Yeah, the, the two things I wrote down just to, to remind myself when answering this question when we went through this pre-show. Number one is, and they have to time this up right, they have to keep getting high-quality defensive linemen to sign with them because the area of the country in which they're in does not produce a lot of top defensive linemen. And so, like, right now we regard Oregon as a team with an elite defense. And in my opinion, it has one. I think Barton's opinion, uh, just just the same. And I think they're going to be really damn good on defense again this, this season. They have got to keep getting guys 
like a Kayvon Thibodeau or just slightly a level down from him on a consistent basis. Because if they don't, they could have a sort of a, a, a new problem. You know, I, I think of the the cartoon where, where the, you know, the guy's on the boat and he's trying to plug these different holes and whatnot. Like those, those are some potential holes that could keep them from being elite on a consistent basis. If they don't have those those top defensive linemen who Cristobal is currently doing a good job. So they, they have to keep doing that. So sustain that. The other thing they have to do is they have to score points. And right now to me, Cristobal obviously has only been coaching there for, what, two years? They've been a little bit, like, he coaches kind of like a defensive coach to me, and that, that's not a bad thing necessarily. But I think if you're overly that way, uh, it can be. And so I I, th- I think I, I believe Moorhead is going to get them turned around, if not this year, then then maybe the next year. But I'm not going to lie, like it does concern me a little bit that they were not a top 20 level offense with a top 10 quarterback playing in the Pac-12. Yeah, and, and I, I think that I think Marcus Arroyo deserves some of the to shoulder some of the blame for that. And look, Joe Moorhead could use a little bit of a career revival too. Like as as hot as he was coming out of Penn State that thing has cooled off a little bit after the Mississippi state tenure. And so, uh, the, the, they, Oregon needs Joe Moorhead, Joe Moorhead needs Oregon. This is, and, and look, Tyler Shuck is a, I think a pretty quality quarterback. Uh, they got the kid from Boston college there as well. I, I think that that's going to be, um, you know, a lot of eyes on the quarterback position too. I mean, I, I know that's not groundbreaking to be like, how does Oregon be dominant? Well, have good offensive coordinator, have good quarterback, but, I, I kind of trust the rest of it. I trust the recruiting. I trust the offensive line. I trust the defense, especially if they keep Andy Avalos there as their defensive coordinator. I, I think it's going to be about coordinator and it's going to be about quarterback. I like it. All right, guys. Really appreciate everybody asking us all these great questions in the Apple Podcast Review section. Keep giving us those five stars. Keep feeding us those questions. And we will see you again shortly, probably uh, this week, for the second half of these questions. show is fire country i'm not a hero i'm in orange for a reason they're taking 12 months off your sentence you're free lady with a special epic season finale now that i'm out i need something to get me up in the morning you are a firefighter used to be that will be unforgettable in the name of your life's happiness go get your girl she's getting married tomorrow says when do you let anything get in the way of what you want the fire country season finale tonight 9 8 central on cbs and streaming on paramount plus